If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Anytime fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you got to be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition, and recovery. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It was once said that all Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. But what was it about the ancient Athenians' thinking that made him so pioneering? And what do we know about the man who left this astonishing legacy? The scholar Robin Waterfield has just written a new biography of Plato, and he spoke to Rob Attar about one of the most remarkable of all ancient Greek thinkers. First of all, when we're thinking about Plato's life story, how do we know what we know? What kind of sources do we have for his life? Well, I should say in the first place that there are not many events in Plato's life that we know of. But I don't find that particularly worrying. I think he actually lived... I, I like to compare him to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, apart from Tolkien's fantastic writings, he lived the life of a, a, the quiet, uneventful life of an Oxford don. And I kind of think Plato was pretty much the same. I think the fact that we don't have... Uh, we don't know that many sort of significant events in his life, is probably a true reflection of the fact that he mostly, not entirely, but mostly lived a quiet and scholarly life. He was born in 424 or 423 BC. That is different from what you'll read in most books. Most books say he was born in 428 or 427 
but uh, for reasons that I go into in my biography, I don't think that's right. He came from a wealthy family. He considered a political career, but was put off that by two major events. The first was that Athens, at the end of the Peloponnesian War in 404 and 403, Athens was ruled by a particularly nasty, narrow oligarchy who quite quickly came to be called and deserved the name of the Thirty Tyrants. And some of his relatives were among the uh, oligarchs, but still, so Plato was attracted towards joining them, but he was put off by their savagery. And then a few years later, when the democracy had been restored, he was put off working for the democracy because they killed or they condemned to death uh, his teacher Socrates. And so Plato turned to teaching and writing instead. And that, as I say, is I think pretty much what he did for the rest of his life, except there were three uh, significant visits to Syracuse, the um, greatest city in Greek Sicily, and probably the most powerful city in Europe at the time. He visited uh, Syracuse three times, once when Dionysius I was the tyrant of Syracuse, the ruler of Syracuse, and twice when Dionysius II was the ruler. He seems to have made some attempt to alter the constitution of Syracuse to get Dionysius II to um, stop being an absolute monarch and to blend monarchy with with democracy, what we would, I think, call a constitutional monarchy as opposed to an absolute monarchy. The other most significant fact of Plato's life is that he founded the um, Academy in 383 BC, the teaching institution. We'll talk more about that later. And then he died in 347. Okay, so how you asked, how do we know about um, all of this? Well, as always, when we're dealing with um, facts and figures from the ancient world, we pick up bits and bobs of information from here and there. But in Plato's case, there are three promising-looking sources. He was a writer, so we've got his own written works, the dialogues, as they are called. We've got a number of ancient biographies written about Plato, And we've got some letters which have come down to us under his name. Now, the first two of those, the dialogues and the ancient biographies, are actually more or less useless. The nature of the dialogues is that Plato wrote like a playwright. That is, he had characters appearing in his dialogues, but he himself never appears. So it's, you know, really difficult to tell whether one should actually attribute any given views to Plato rather than to any of the characters in his, in his dialogues. And so they're, very, they're not a good source for telling us details of Plato's life. He only appears by name three times in his dialogues, and each of those three times is very trivial. So then we've got these ancient biographies. Now, the trouble with those, the ones that survive are... I mean, the earliest of the ones that survives, and it only survives in fragments, was written in the first century BC, in other words, several hundred years after Plato's life. That one is very fragmentary, and then the later ones, which survive in full, are both very brief, and another several hundred years later again. I mean, you know, they're written in the fourth century CE or the sixth century CE, 
And they come at the end of a long, ancient tradition of biographical writing, which is really very gossipy. They retell fanciful stories about their subjects, and they're not at all reliable. And a lot of the stories are just plain silly, like Plato died of shame because he was unable to answer a riddle, or the students in the academy blinded themselves so that they wouldn't be distracted from studying philosophy. Uh, Those are two fairly extreme examples of silly stories, but the ancient biographies do contain quite a lot of silly stories like that. And they give the broad trajectory of Plato's life quite accurately, but the details are not very useful at all. So then we turn to these letters. Now, there are lots of letters that have come down to us under Plato's name, but there are 13 only that have some claim to authenticity because they were included very early on, probably by the end of the 3rd century BCE, they were included within the corpus of Plato's works. And I accept the authenticity of three of them, and the most important, the one that all those who accept any of the letters as authentic accept as authentic is letter 7. It's very long. It gives us considerable details about Plato's visits to Syracuse and some, a sort of a fairly brief account of some of his thinking when he was young about whether or not he would join the 30 and go into politics and then when the democracy was renewed, whether or not he'd do that. So you said Plato's life may not have been the most eventful one, but is it fair to say that he lived through quite eventful times in terms of the Greek world at this point? Most definitely. If he was born in 424 or 423, then he was growing up while Athens was enmeshed in the Peloponnesian War. This was a war that pitted Athens and its extensive allies and or subjects against Sparta and its extensive allies. And this was a prolonged, a protracted war, and it was as horrible and full of atrocities as you know, any war is. And by the time Plato was, I would say, 12 or 13 or 14, it was already clear that Athens was going to lose. And so, you know, Plato spent um, his early teenage years living in a place which must have been a very gloomy and depressing place to live because everybody knew they were going to be defeated. They didn't know what would happen after that. I mean, it was quite common for a town simply to be razed to the ground by its enemies on being defeated. Uh, So that must have been a very nerve-wracking time to be growing up. But I want to say already at this point, Rob, that I'm not at all a fan of psychological analysis of ancient people. If Plato was here to talk to us live, then that would be one thing, but he's not. And so I don't like to infer aspects of his character from, as it were, any childhood traumas that he had or any, you know, any problems or difficulties or that he had as, while he was growing up. And so you mentioned also in that first answer, Socrates. How important was Plato's relationship with Socrates? Very, very important. I mean, critical. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that um, all of Plato's work was a development of what Socrates was doing. Plato was introduced to Socrates probably in his mid-teens and perhaps by his elder brothers. He had two elder brothers who seemed to have known Socrates, so maybe they affected the introduction. 
and Plato became one of Socrates' favourites when he joined the Socratic circle, the group. Now, we don't know exactly what this group got up to, uh, but we do know, among other things, that there was a decided political bent to it. It seems that one of Socrates' chief motivations was trying to train up young men to take charge of Athens when they came of age and had the experience to steer it into the paths of political righteousness. In other words, a very important thing that Plato learned from Socrates was a certain disrespect for democracy. Socrates and then Plato, in all his political writings, but perhaps most especially the Republic, wanted political leaders to be experts, and only a few of them, not the Athenian democracy in which every person, well, every citizen, I should say, because it wasn't a democracy quite as we understand it, because women were excluded, but every citizen had the right to vote in the Athenian democracy and to make policy, therefore, by their votes. But Plato and Socrates thought that policy should be made by a small number of experts, and famously in Republic, gender was not important. Plato allowed that women could become political experts just as well as men and take charge of the city. So anyway, yeah, there was a political bent, certainly, to the Socratic group. But also, you know, Plato also developed metaphysics and ethics and and aesthetics and, uh, you know, every uh, branch of philosophy that you can you can think of. And all of those, too, in some sense, stem, I believe, from uh, Socrates' work. But Socrates, to us, is a, bound to be an extremely enigmatic figure because he never wrote anything for publication. So we only ever see him refracted through um, Plato's work, and also we have the complete Socratic works of another of Socrates' philosophers, Xenophon, who's also well-known, perhaps better known, as a historian. So we have those two works, uh, but Socrates himself didn't write anything. And, there's, uh, and the portraits that Xenophon and Plato give of Socrates are extremely different. They can't both be right. So I think it's probably fair to say that neither of them was writing history. Neither of them was trying to give us accurate portrait of Socrates. Plato was a genius. Plato didn't spend his time just parroting what Socrates did. As I've said or suggested, he spent, he spent his time developing Socratic lines of work. So another thing that I think it's important to mention at this stage is, is to make it clear that Plato was not alone. There, we know the names of quite a number of people, over 30 people, who were members of the Socratic circle. And at least some of those people went on to write books themselves and even to start schools themselves, just as Plato started the academy. But they differed from each other. They weren't all saying the same thing. They weren't all developing the same philosophy. So what I think Socrates did was he, he as it were, propounded principles, high-level, generalized principles. And then it was up to his followers to develop those principles in whatever directions that they found most congenial and, and most correct. So, for instance, Plato was most definitely not, neither Plato nor Xenophon were hedonists. They did not think that pleasure was the goal of life in any shape or form. But another of the Socratics, a man called Aristippus, did. 
he developed a, a mildly hedonistic philosophy while still calling himself a Socratic. Plato is so famous that we think of him as being the only true Socratic, but there were a lot of true Socratics, a lot of true Socratics in the group. He wasn't alone in that respect. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And then the Academy itself. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and why it's such an important part of his legacy? The Academy was founded in 383, just shortly after Plato returned from his first visit to southern Italy and Sicily. The name Academy is simply derived from the fact that the school was founded in a suburb of Athens that was named after a local hero called Academos or Hecademos. So there's no more significance to the name than that. We, of course, are now, you know, we have our own academies and we are called academics and so on and so forth. But that's actually originally named after this Athenian hero, Academos. The school, Plato's school, used for its teaching both the gymnasium that was in the Academy Park and Plato's private home that was nearby. Gymnasia throughout ancient Greece, were all, always educational establishments. And in fact, as far as we can tell from what very little uh, archaeological remains there are of the Academy Gymnasium, it rather looks as though it was, right from the start, dedicated more to educational pursuits than just gymnastic pursuits. So I said that teaching went on in the gymnasium, 
and teaching went on in Plato's private home, which after a while he bought nearby within the academy suburb. And I think there was quite a rigid distinction between the kinds of teaching that went on in those two places. Philosophy at the time, philosophy until the 18th century, until, you know, relatively recently, was like a sort of a blanket term which covered everything from mathematics to geography to what we call philosophy to, you know, political theory. And everything was all contained under this umbrella term of of philosophia. And philosophy in that broad sense was considered a kind of a way for wealthy and cultured young men to round off their higher education. So the sort of bread and butter of the academy, actually that's the wrong term because Plato didn't charge fees, but anyway, the sort of uh, ground level of what was going on in the academy was that young men would, as it were, commute out of Athens and attend a lecture or two in the gymnasium, the academy gymnasium, and do that for a year or two, casually there was no sort of you know rigorous curriculum or anything like that and that was um, their way of as I say rounding off their education and that I think was the main kind of uh, teaching that went on in the in the academy gymnasium meanwhile at Plato's private home that was kind of like the center of the research aspect of the academy because it was not only a, a teaching academy it was more if you like like all souls college oxford a center for you know intense and high level research where students could also come to be taught as well and uh, it's the it's really the research for which the academy has become particularly famous uh, because it nurtured extremely famous people the most most famous being aristotle of course he he was at the academy for 20 years from uh, 367 until Plato's death in 347. Aristotle was working there. Eudoxus of Cnidus, uh, another incredibly famous and influential uh, scientific thinker, astronomer, mathematician. Speusippus, Plato's nephew, who um, succeeded Plato as the head of the academy after Plato's death. And Many others. We know the names of of, of many others uh, of these researchers um, at the academy, and what they were looking into was a, a huge, wide range of subjects, from biology to you know metaphysics. Mathematical subjects loomed very large. There was a story arose much later that Plato had inscribed over the entrance to the academy, let no one who is ignorant of geometry enter here. That's undoubtedly an apocryphal story, along with all, you know, as I suggested earlier, many of the other apocryphal stories from these ancient biographies. But certainly it's true that mathematical studies were quite central to what the academy was doing. Plato himself surely did some of the teaching in the academy gymnasium, but his role where the research was concerned, he seems to have been rather aloof. He seems to have really uh, left Aristotle and the others to get on with their own research without interfering. He, He encouraged, he pointed in certain directions, but he wasn't actively involved beyond that. And another uh, very important and rather unexpected aspect of the academy was that it wasn't just, you know, high-level metaphysical etc. research 
that was going on at it, the school also produced political troubleshooters. It sent people from Athens all over the Greek world to try to sort out, to rewrite a constitution for a city, even to bring about the deposition of a ruler, the replacement of a ruler by another. Again, there was no kind of political party line which they had to which they had to tow. Some of them set themselves up as tyrants, some of them deposed tyrants. Some of them uh, were more democratic in leaning, some were more oligarch in leaning, and so on. But so we've got these two these two main aspects of the academy scholarly research into all all the subjects you can think of that might be carried under the umbrella of, of philosophy and also political troubleshooting, a most unusual combination. So coming on to Plato's work itself, what was it about his philosophical approach that was so pioneering? I would say there are two two things that are most important. First was that he kind of saw philosophy as a unified field. The same approach, the same strategy that he hoped would unlock metaphysical keys, he also hoped would unlock ethical doors as well. And so that actually leads to the second aspect where I think he's particularly pioneering important, which is that the way I put it is that Plato invented philosophy as we know it, by which I mean, although this should probably be attributed to Socrates rather than just to Plato, by which I mean that he made philosophy self-reflective rather than dogmatic. From the fragments that remain of his predecessors, it looks as though they were writing rather short and dogmatic treatises. This is how it is. Whereas Plato Plato didn't work like that at all. He asked questions. So he turned philosophy in the direction which it still has, which is the attempt to phrase the right questions to ask so that we can get a sensible and a meaningful answer. But the job of philosophy, I think, is more to raise the questions than to find the answers. And that, I think, that, that I think is why Plato was particularly important, was that he, was that he, turned, um, he turned philosophy in that particular direction. And which would you say were his most important works? We find that Plato's written works, fall, which there are uh, at least 28 that I consider authentic and most scholars would consider authentic, we find that they fall into three phases, which with startling innovation we scholars call early, middle and late. So what I'd like to do is just briefly summarise one dialogue from each of those three periods, an early dialogue, a middle period dialogue and a late one. So the let's take Lakey's as an early dialogue. It's pretty typical of uh, quite a few of the early dialogues. The philosophical topic for Lakey's is courage, what it is and what its value is. And Plato has Socrates in both the early and middle dialogues. Socrates is invariably Plato's spokesperson. So in Lakey's, Plato has Socrates engage two famous Athenian military men on the topic because they, if anyone, might be expected to know what courage is. So the dialogue progresses, various ideas about courage are proposed. Socrates is always questioning. So, you know, one of the generals says, courage is endurance in the face of danger. 
Socrates questions him and proves that that proposition is inconsistent with another more general proposition that he holds, which is that courage is always good. And so gradually, Socrates undermines all the various attempts to define courage. Various ideas are proposed, none of them is able to survive as a universal definition of courage, and so the dialogue ends negatively. So these early dialogues explore topics in a very open-ended fashion, not coming to definite conclusions, but therefore encouraging readers to think for themselves about what courage or justice or friendship might be and its importance in human life. Um, and then let's turn to a middle period dialogue. <clears throat> the, the middle period uh, contains all the dialogues that we really think of as Plato's core works, Symposium, Republic, Phaedo, and a number of others. When we think of Platonism, when we think of things like the theory of forms as Plato's metaphysical theory and things like that, these are the ideas that are developed in these middle period dialogues. I'll uh, briefly summarise Phaedo. The dialogue is set on Socrates' last day alive. He's in prison, awaiting death by drinking the poison hemlock. So death is in the air, and the conversation turns quite naturally to the immortality of the soul. Will Socrates, will anyone, in some sense, survive death? So, as the dialogue progresses, various arguments are tried out that might prove, or at least suggest, the immortality of the soul. Two of those, I think, are particularly interesting in terms of Plato's philosophy. One is the idea known as the theory of recollection, that we don't so much acquire concepts throughout our lives. I mean, the way, Rob, that you and I and other people nowadays might think of, we, we think we know how to distinguish a chair from a stool because over our lives we've acquired concepts from experience, from seeing and being told that enable us to say that's a chair and that's a stool. But Plato... Um, thought something in quite different. He thought that we didn't acquire concepts, particularly the most important ethical concepts throughout our lives, but we're actually recalling them, we're remembering them. We knew them in a pre-incarnate existence, and that when we identify something, I won't use chairs and stools anymore because they're too trivial, but when we identify an action as just, as good, as courageous or as friendly, that we're actually remembering that concept, that form, as he would say, from uh, before we were born. So it's these eternally existing entities that enable us to identify things as good or just or whatever. We call something beautiful because we already have in minds an ideal of what beauty should be like. So these things, these forms, they're clearly not material entities and they're knowable only by the mind or the soul. So one of the arguments we get for, immort for the immortality of the soul in the Phaedo is just that the soul is more akin to these immaterial entities so that it must be immaterial itself and therefore not liable to generational destruction. So this is a suggestive argument for the soul's immortality. Then there's also an argument from opposites. The soul is what animates us. That's, uh, that was an absolutely bog-standard ancient 
premise, the soul is what gives us life. It was associated with air. You know, when we took our first breath, when we were born, we were <gasps> taking in air, but also arousing, stimulating, starting our soul. So um, the soul is what animates us and gives us life. And so therefore the very concept of death is alien to it. So that's another suggestive argument for the immortality of the soul. So uh, Fido is typical then of the middle period dialogues in, in uh, these respects, that it develops profound metaphysical theories and that uh, we meet a lot of extremely interesting arguments for the positions that are held. Arguments that scholars are still puzzling through in some senses or interpreting or uh, developing and uh, as relevant even to philosophical issues today. But then finally, I'll talk about a, a, uh, a late work and uh, I pick on Plato's laws. It's almost certainly the last thing he ever wrote, but it was very, it's very long. It's uh, by quite a long way his longest work, so he was probably working on it for quite a few years, might have been writing other stuff at the same time. In Laws, Plato outlines in considerable detail the law code of an imaginary city called Magnesia that is designed to be as perfect a political community as there could be on Earth. Now, the difference between that, I think, and the ideal community that Plato outlines in Republic is that the one in the laws is actually meant to be practicable, if not in absolutely every detail, then at least broadly practicable. Whereas the one in Republic is, I think, meant to be is a utopia, it's not one that Plato ever expected to, uh, to actually appear on Earth in any form, but was holding it out as an ideal, as something to strive for, at least in part. So in terms of Plato's biography, in terms of the trajectory of his life, uh, one says, I say, that you know, one of the differences, the difference between Republican laws shows that Plato was becoming more realistic in his political thought as he got older. And I associate that with his negative experiences in Syracuse. In Syracuse, as I said earlier, he tried to get Dionysius II to uh, moderate his monarchy. He didn't want him to become one of the philosopher rulers of Republic, but just to be a, uh, a constitutional monarch rather than absolute monarch. He failed. Dionysius turned out to not be suitable material. Uh, and I think that failure sort of imbued Plato's political thinking with a little more realism. And it's that increased realism that we find in laws as opposed to republic. So laws is supposed to be a practicable second best community, not the ideal community of republic. Note, by the way, I should say in passing, how that Plato's two longest works Republican laws, both of them by far his longest works, are works of political philosophy. And so are a number of other not short works, Gorgias, Statesman. Political philosophy was absolutely central. I mean, it's something like 40%, let's say, of Plato's writings are political writings. So, you know, to think of him just as a metaphysician of somebody who developed the theory of forms and an ethical philosophy and so on and so forth is well wrong. Polit political thought was absolutely central to what he was doing. And as I suggested earlier, I see this as um, 
one of the trends that he learned from Socrates. So the kind of ideal constitution Plato develops in laws is really pretty much what he was hoping to uh, get Dionysius II to, uh, to bring about in Syracuse. The work starts with an extended discussion of principles. What should the goals of legislation be? What is the best political system? And then we get at great length, we get Magnesia's political structure. What public officers will it have? What, 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 will, what are their jobs? And then we get a long discussion of particular laws Magnesia will need. Uh, laws governing especially the upbringing and education of citizens, and so on. And finally, the work ends with a discussion of how Magnesia, how this ideal community is to be kept intact and as good as it originally was without degenerating and, with, and what kind of people should be responsible for seeing to its preservation. So that will give you some idea of uh, the scope of his work. But of course, I've touched on only three out of 28 possible dialogues. So, uh, you know, clearly there's much, much more. Just as an aside, one of the concepts that Plato is perhaps most famous for is Atlantis, which has gone off in its, its own direction ever since. But what did Plato actually say about Atlantis in his writing? The story of Atlantis occurs in two of his dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. It occurs rather briefly in Timaeus and at much greater length in Critias. However, Critias is an incomplete dialogue. It's not incomplete because we've lost any of it. It's incomplete because Plato literally stopped writing it in mid-sentence. He never completed it. And the mid-sentence that he stopped at is part of his uh, development of the plan and structure and uh, political governance of Atlantis. So we don't, we can't be absolutely sure which, you know, what would have happened next. But what we can say is that, well, firstly, it's a story, it's a myth. Plato was the first to come up with the idea of Atlantis. Uh, there's no record of it anywhere else. So he's not however much people, some people would like it to be, he's not talking about any kind of historical fact. He sets um, Atlantis in the way, way, way prehistoric past. He's imagining a prehistoric past in which um, a corrupt Atlantis, and this is another important point because, you know, lots of people who are enthusiastic about Atlantis hold it up as an ideal society of knowledge and wisdom, which if only we could recover, you know, the 21st century would be a lot better and so on and so forth. But it's not like that at all. Atlantis may have started off um, as an ideal or some kind of pretty good society when it was governed by the gods. But Plato would say the same about all societies. The Atlantis he's actually talking about, the Atlantis he's interested in, is a corrupt society. Greed has corrupted it, and particularly imperialism has corrupted it. So the imperialist Atlanteans wanted to uh, expand, and the story that Plato's t Plato's uh, tells, as I say, only in part, is that uh, the Atlanteans invaded Europe from their home just outside, uh, you know, the uh, Gibraltar Straits. They invaded Europe and were resisted by a noble and heroic race of prehistoric Athenians. 
That's the story that, that Plato tells. Now, why? Uh, because Atlantis is its a parable. It's an analogy. Fifth century Athens, uh, at the height of its democracy, a democracy which Plato saw as irresponsible, was an imperial state. As I said earlier, when I mentioned the Peloponnesian War, Athens had not just allies, but subjects. It had a really huge empire uh, of subject cities, which it controlled with a fairly heavy hand, sometimes a brutal hand. And Plato was not apparently in favour of this at all. And so imperialist Atlantis is almost certainly an, an analogy for imperialist Athens of the 5th century, whereas the good Athens of the Atlantis story, the noble heroic Athenians who resist Atlantean imperialism, are probably an analogy for an earlier phase of Athenian politics, shortly after they had turned themselves over to, to a democracy, but before that democracy had got particularly radical and extreme. It was the radicalness and the extremity that uh, Plato disapproved of, the irresponsibility of the developed democracy by the end of the 5th century that he disapproved of, not, not its earlier and first manifestation at the beginning of the 5th century. So the Atlantis story was made up by Plato as a political metaphor, so I believe. It has no foundation in historical fact. And then, just finally, what do you see as Plato's legacy for the modern world? No more than what I've already said, although that kind of confines his legacy to, as it were, practising philosophers. When I say that, you know, he pioneered this uh, unified field approach to philosophy and this questioning, self-reflective approach, that has left its mark on all philosophers. Alfred North Whitehead, a philosopher of the earlier 20th century, famously said that, in his view, all Western philosophy was no more than a series of footnotes to Plato. And I believe that to be true. But, OK, so that, I think, is his legacy to practising philosophers, all of them, however remotely, however different their work seems from the work that Plato was doing. All of them actually owe something to Plato, particularly to his development of methods of argumentation. What he encourages the rest of us, as it were, to do, lay readers of his work, is, I think, to see life as an ongoing quest. This is part of his, you know, questioning approach to any topic, is not necessarily to be satisfied with an answer, to feel we know the truth about anything, but to go on and on and on asking until we've refined our questions and refined our answers to something that we can live with. And there's a very radical aspect to this in the sense that, you know, even if, even if Western society has sanctioned a particular form of behaviour for thousands of years, for hundreds of years, um, Plato would encourage us still to question it, to see whether it holds true, to see whether it holds true for us as well, or to see whether there's, you know, this is a, an aspect of society's code that might need some tweaking or even rejection. And I think that I think I would say that was his legacy to his broadest legacy to all of us to go on questioning, to go on questing, to keep looking, to see life as a as an ongoing search. 
That was Robin Waterfield. Plato of Athens, A Life in Philosophy is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Thank you.